You're listening to Recovery Nuggets Podcast, where we give you recovery nuggets to chew on and think about on your journey in recovery and on the path, featuring your host, David Clemen. What's up, all you recovery nuggets out there? This is your host, David. I uh, wanted to do a quick intro to this week's episode. I'm super excited to have this guest on the show, Dr. Jamie Marich, she, they, describes herself as a facilitator of transformative experiences, a clinical trauma specialist, expressive artist, writer, yogini, performer, short filmmaker, Reiki master, TEDx speaker, and recovery advocate. She unites all of these elements in her mission to inspire healing in others. She began her career as a humanitarian aid worker in Bosnia-Herzegovina from 2000 to 2003 primarily teaching English and music while freelancing with other projects. Jamie travels internationally teaching on topics related to trauma, EMDR therapy, expressive arts, mindfulness, and yoga while maintaining a private practice and online education operations in her home base of Warren, Ohio. Jamie is the author of numerous books on trauma recovery and healing with many more projects in the works. Marich is the founder of the Institute for Creative Mindfulness. She also has a website uh, called TraumaMadeSimple.com. This was an excellent interview. I have her book, Trauma and the 12 Steps. And um, the reason I wanted to have her on the show is because um, as a longtime 12-stepper, I noticed certain things that went on in the rooms and how to deal with them. And there were also things that I realized I didn't realize as far as being trauma informed and trauma sensitive in the 12 step recovery space. And her book really dives into these topics that may not be discussed as much as they um, probably should be. And so uh, it's a different insight into sponsoring and counseling people with uh, trauma. And I mean, I can't say enough about her work. She is prolific and a force, and she is also c- considered an EMDR badass. She was coined that phrase by another a friend of hers who's in the EMDR world. So uh, I really encourage you to check out her work online, Dr. Jamie Marich. You can find videos, EMDR videos, there's just so much work that she has to share. And, uh, I was super excited to get her on the show and, um, I hope you enjoy. Welcome to another episode of recovery nuggets. I'm your host, David Clement. I'm here with Dr. Jamie Marich. She's the author of trauma and the 12 steps, along with many other books that you can check out on her many websites. She's the founder of the Institute for creative mindfulness and, um, Welcome, Dr. Jamie. Hi, David. So great to be here. Yeah, I'm glad we we finally linked up. And, um, you know, Instagram is a powerful tool if used properly. And um, I stumbled onto your book through a free Audible credit that I had. And, um, you know, Trauma in the 12 Steps, just I I basically just listened to it in one day because of being in recovery and then learning about healing and dealing with trauma with different techniques. So uh, I wanted to have you on, talk about the book, talk about your story, and and really just pick your brain on lots of different topics related to these subjects. Wonderful. Well, my brain is here to be picked. 
Yeah. So uh, tell me a little bit about your story in recovery and, and then how you ended up on this journey of helping so many people. Yeah. Well, whenever I'm asked to share a snippet of my story, I, mm-hmm. I kind of sit back and marvel at, wow, there's, there's some greater hand in all of this, whether you choose to call that God or energy or the universal flow, because the woman I met who would become my first sponsor and really get me on this path of both addiction recovery and 12 step recovery, she essentially live 45 minutes from where I'm from here in Ohio in the US. But we met both working in Bosnia Herzegovina after the Croatian homeland war. Uh, and the war is called several different things, depending on the side you're on. So my family's Croatian, and I grew up with a lot of tie to my my cultural heritage. And uh, there was a brutal war there from 91 to 95. And I was in high school during much of that. But then after I went to college and uh, finished my undergrad degree kind of on a fast track, I knew that I wanted to go over there and work in some way instead of just kind of study about things. And Mm. my background is actually in English and history and the performing arts. And I had no real interest in psychology at that point, probably because I was so mired in my own psychological distress uh, after leaving my parents' home. And I ended up at the time really making what what we might jokingly call a geographical cure in that Mm -hmm. when I was in a really low way with my own addiction and mental health symptoms, I moved 8,000 miles away to my ancestral homeland to work in a war recovery effort because that just felt like the right thing to do. And I thought maybe that might help me get my head on straight. And here is where I met Janet Leff, my first sponsor, who I dedicated Trauma on the 12 Steps to. And uh, she was there in her retirement as a social worker who had also done about 12 humanitarian aid runs during the active war. And my first exposure to anything that we would call recovery was through her just meeting her in the community that i was living in and my first exposure to any kind of recovery meeting it wasn't a 12-step meeting but it was like a county council on alcoholism meeting uh it's the best way i can describe it Uh, Mm -hmm. i went as her translator because uh she worked with translators she was not of croatian or bosnian background Uh, I was not a professional translator, but was good in a pinch. And she didn't really have anybody to go with to the meeting. And so I I went with her and I translated and things just started making some sense. And uh, Janet was the very epitome at that time in my life of attraction rather than promotion. She never tried to force anything down my throat. She was patient. Even the first AA big book she gave me was in Croatian. And she said, here, it'll help you learn some of the words, like if you want to do this more of this kind of translating. And here, as I started reading this concepts, I realized that a lot of it was really resonating with me and my family patterns. And so when I was in a really low way a little later that summer, uh, due to some relational drama, imagine that, and Mm -hmm. uh, continuing to kind of go back to my chemical of choice, even though I'd been using alcohol the whole time. Uh, I knew that this this Janet woman who was just very nice to me and gracious would have a lot of the answers. And I still remember that that first August day uh, outside under a tree by this orange trailer that she used as like a makeshift office. Mm-hmm. And I 
told her my my life in chemicals. And that's when she gave me the good news that you're an alcoholic or you're an addict. And I said, how is that good news? And she said, yeah. it's a good news. It's good news because we know what to do about it. And several months later, she then further validated trauma as part of my narrative. Uh, at that point in my life, at a, as a 21-year-old, I had only maybe heard of PTSD in post-traumatic mm -hmm. stress disorder in passing reference. And that was something that only combat veterans, especially like Vietnam combat veterans, experienced. And she was the first voice in my life who really helped me to see that trauma takes on various shapes and plays out in different countries and different kinds of families. And it might play out in different ways, but it can still impact our nervous system in a way that keeps us stuck and makes chemicals very appealing. So, I mean, my story really began with Janet on so many levels. She, and I talk about this in Trauma and the 12 Steps, uh, she, she gave me kind of this magic ingredient for my life, which was she validated my struggle and then she challenged me. It was very yeah. much uh, after everything you've went through, it's no wonder you became alcoholic. So what now? What's the plan now? Because uh, I think sometimes in 12-step in recovery, especially, we can get so in the tough love and so in the, mm -hmm. you know, get off your butt and make a plan and all this, which I think is all important. But if we do that without validating where a person's coming from, uh, it it can go fall on deaf ears and really be unhelpful. But some of my colleagues who are a little more trauma focused think sometimes could validate a person's story so much, but almost as an excuse and not <laughs> encourage any action or any response. So you know, Janet just really helped me to see the importance of both. And I, you know, it, was, it still took me a while to get sober after that because mm -hmm. I did a lot of back and forth for a while. But then once she saw I kind of finally got it, she recommended that I come back and do a graduate degree in counseling. And I said, I wow, didn't. So that yeah, I said, I didn't even like psychology. What are you talking about? And I'm not well enough to be to be doing this. And something she said that always stayed with me, she said, Jamie, God qualifies chosen people. God doesn't pick qualified people. <laughs> like, oh, okay. Yeah said so much of what you've learned in your life and what you've learned by working with the kids here in this post-war environment has taught you about the art of working with trauma. So now go back and get the technical training. And that's what I did. And here I am 19, almost 20 years later. Yeah. Well, that's interesting because you ended up in recovery kind of by almost by accident, oh. with this, this, this woman, Janet. Yeah. And then so you didn't start in 12 steps, but it sounded like you ended up there and then you saw things because I can tell when I read and listen to this book that you're you're coming from a place of I've been in the meetings. I've seen these things happen. They're not very trauma informed. Right. I need to do. It seems like this book is like I love 12 steps. It's got its things that are ne not necessarily great, but there's a lot of good stuff about it. And here's some other things that I've noticed. Yes. And when I wrote the first edition of this book in 2012, and it has been an expanded wider edition now in 2020, uh, someone asked me in an interview like this, what would be your hope for putting mm -hmm. a book like this into the world? And my honest, plain answer, and it's still my honest, plain answer, is I hope everybody coming into recovery would be met with someone like Janet. 
mm-hmm. especially as a sponsor, because she she was very pure twelve step, mm-hmm. but also understood trauma and its impact on the human experience. And so she knew the importance of validation. She knew why I melted down at certain times and Mm -hmm. how to not just meet it with slogans, but she also knew like when to use slogans. And so she really uh, fostered in me a love of the 12 steps and what they could be. And I remember even Mm -hmm. when I first came back to the US for a visit and did a couple meetings here, I remember calling her on the phone and it was long distance at the time. This was like pre Skype, pre WhatsApp and all of that. And I said, Janet, like a guy hit on me at a meeting. What am I supposed to do? I had had that experience. And, and like, there's people here who aren't taking this seriously because the small meetings I was attending with her and the one-on-one work I was attending with her. And so I think she really exposed me to an amazing view of what 12-step work could be. She was very pro-outside help. And when I got back to the U.S. and then got into my own EMDR therapy, she was so on board with that, knowing that the 12 steps would be a good base for me, but I would need to do some deeper work on a lot of my family of origin stuff. And, uh, you know, she was never one of those just don't drink and go to meetings. It'll be fine. She understood the importance of looking at the larger picture. So yeah, I would hope everybody could have that experience that I had with her because like in my world, I navigate now in the mental health world and the trauma world, there's a lot of hate towards the 12 steps for good reason to be clear. I think many people have been traumatized in meetings, traumatized in treatment centers. Uh, The steps have been used inappropriately. Mm -hmm. all of this. And I am all about validating the experience of a person when they tell me that this has been their experience in 12 step. Yet on the other hand, that was not my experience, but that was because I had Janet. Right. And then I ended up, and even my current sponsor is somebody who really helps me to see the 12 steps as it's kind of a greatest hits of a lot of the spiritual traditions that I hold dear. And when the steps aren't being used in an abusive or a a dictatorial way, uh, they really help enhance my spiritual path. So that's my story. And I'm sticking to it, but wanting to be open to what other people have experienced too. Yeah. And I mean, my experience is really good with the 12 steps and a sponsor and everything that goes along with it. But I too have seen things where I didn't agree with it. And, you know, there's certain meetings where they say, you know, a newcomer will come in and they say, sit down and shut the F up. Yep. And it's, and I'm, I'm just not with that whole vibe right. at all. Right. And I like what you talk about in your book about, and this really opened my eyes to being more trauma informed as far as the slogans, like take the cotton out of your ears and put it in your mouth. I'd never even considered what if the person's been abused and literally had things stuffed in their mouth. Mm-hmm. And so we talk about that a little bit, the slogans and how they can be a little bit uh, detrimental. Yes. So as I explained in the book, slogan actually comes from a Scottish Gaelic root, meaning short jab. And so when slogans are used positively, it's like, aha, you know, it's like a Mm -hmm. kind of jabbing the fist in the air. Like this is something that can inspire us in battle, but jabs can wound. Mm. And there, there are a lot of good slogans that I do like, but even they can be wounding if they're placed in a way that's kind of telling somebody, you know, to shut up. 
Like just easy does it. Like I love easy does it as a slogan. I use easy does it as a slogan, yes. but if, if it's used in a way to really kind of negate and cut off a person, it's like, hear the person out and then maybe give them an easy does it. So something I talk about is kind of how we use slogans, but yeah, there are some slogans that I just don't think have a place like take the cotton out of yours, put it in your mouth. I'm glad that resonated with you. Cause yeah, some people literally have had or forced oral sexual trauma. <laughs> and even if that's not been a person's story, most traumatic experiences come with what you have to say is not important. Mm -hmm. Be quiet. And like so much of the work of Claudia Black, which is, I mean, this is kind of trickled into an Al-Anon slogan, is uh, don't talk, don't trust, don't feel mm. are the three written rules of an alcoholic home. And yeah. that is what prevents trauma processing. And so something like sit down, shut up, put the cotton out of yours, put it in your mouth. I, I can actually see some of the intention in it, which is that mm -hmm. you really do need to listen. Right. Yet, encouraging a person to listen by being that abrasive to them is not going to do anybody any good as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, we learn as we go, but if, if the person comes in and has a, a rough experience right out of the gate and they get maybe sniper shared or it's some old timer, they ask a question and the old timer just blasts them and then they leave during the meeting. Right. I don't think that's helpful either. I don't think that's the spirit of recovery in 12 step. And mm -hmm. so it gets misconstrued and they leave and they're traumatized worse. Mm -hmm. And then they go, well, that didn't work either. So now I might as well go use or drink or whatever. So I really appreciate, you know, this book. I love the cover, by the way, too. Uh, for those listening, it's got this beautiful uh, illustration of the mountains and um, everyone should check this book out. So um, so what are you up to uh, these days? And, and well, actually, let me back up. I've heard sure. you speak about trauma in terms of the, the definition and where it came from in the Greek word. Yeah. Can you can you share that yeah. a little bit? I think this is where it's at. So, and remember, I started as an English teacher. That's what mm -hmm. I was doing in Bosnia in the first place. Yeah. So things like slogan and 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 trauma, it's like, let's look at the English word origin because we can probably mine a lot of gold from that. So the English word trauma comes from the Greek word meaning wound. Mm -hmm. And so when I'm asked for my working definition of trauma, it is any unhealed human wound. And that could be physical, emotional, sexual, spiritual in nature. And so much of what we need to know can be looked at by the wound metaphor physically and thinking, well, what do we know about wounds physically and how does this apply to other types of wounding? So some examples include wounds can take a very short time to cause, but a very long time to heal. Some wounds require professional treatment. Some wounds just need some time and attention. Uh, but if they get picked at and reopened or uh, infected in some way, then the healing process is going to be complicated. Some wounds are bigger than others. Sometimes it depends where the location is, was proper treatment received at the time. Uh, following the era of COVID, we all know what the term immunocompromised means now. And for someone who's immunocompromised, even an injury that looks seemingly innocuous can have more of a life or death impact for them than somebody who's in relatively good health and receives good nutrition as, as another variable. So there's so many variables that go into the wound care process. 
And the reality is so many wounds we experience as people uh, that are not of the physical nature are often not regarded with the same sense of urgency. Uh, I wrote a piece at the beginning of the pandemic called What I Wish People Understood About Risk and Contamination. Mm -hmm. And I think the COVID era has shown us, yes, all the precautions that people have taken to prevent the spread of disease. I mean, some people ignored them. That's right. A point. Yeah. <laughs> but what I said in this piece was, I wish we would do that with physical trauma too, or emotional and spiritual and sexual and all other kinds of trauma too. Because if trauma remains unhealed, we continue bleeding over everybody else that we come into contact with. So, uh, that I think there's so much that can be mined from that metaphor. And I go into more detail about it in the book. I also did a TEDx talk on it back in 2015. So if you just uh, YouTube my name and TEDx, you can hear me riff a little bit more on the trauma as wound metaphor. Oh yeah. I'm going to put your links up in the show notes. And uh, just to everyone listening, uh, Dr. Jamie is prolific in her work all over the interwebs. <laughs> and uh, I actually was watching the TED talk before we got on here. And um, so I wanted to go into, in relation to trauma and the 12 steps and how we can, you know, when I first got clean, I wasn't, I wasn't ready to deal with any trauma. I had to learn how to first stop using uh -huh. and then through step work and sponsorship and learning to be of service and that path of recovery, I kind of stumbled into a divorce in the rooms. It was very painful. And then learning about stumbling into EMDR mm -hmm. and, and I did some talk therapy where the talk therapy, it didn't work for me as well, but I didn't poo poo it or like talk bad about it. But when I went into EMDR, it helped me process that body stuckness and emotional stuckness. And once I found that it was like this whole new world opened up to me as far as dealing with my trauma, what would you, what would you like to share with people that are in recovery and, and maybe they're not ready yet, or maybe they're curious and want to go there? I think it's a great question. And, and my experience clinically and as a person in recovery is mm -hmm. different folks have different journeys mm -hmm. at regarding what time is the good time or the best time or the optimal time to do some of the, the deepest trauma healing. And I, I think of my experience just because it's my, my lane, it's what I know the best. And for instance, I didn't do the deepest part of my trauma healing until I was about two years sober. Mm -hmm. uh, when I came back to the U S and went to graduate school and was becoming severely triggered by the people I was working with. That's when I got into EMDR and really started kind of the heart of my trauma journey. But I think all of the two years prior to that was still preparation for that process. And the reason I made it the two years is because I had someone like Janet who validated my trauma from day one. Mm -hmm. And I think we can still be trauma informed as sponsors, as people in the rooms, as professionals, without necessarily going for the jugular right away. And part of that is, again, the art of validation. Like, I hear this as part of your story. What do we have to do to at least help you manage some of the triggers around that, manage some of the stressors around that? There's a lot of skills. And I think some of the 12-step skills are fantastic for this, like picking up the phone to call someone. Uh, Janet taught me the whole idea of using a God box, making gratitude lists. And these are very action-based skills that 
There's your God jar. I love it. <laughs> David just put that up on the screen. Uh, yeah, that because I think so much of early recovery does have. And Janet, I'm, I still hear her voice saying, uh, "Chapter six is called into action, not into thinking." Mm. So, what are some real action steps you can start taking? And that's actually a very trauma informed idea that you can't just think or talk your way into healing. You have to actually get up and do. And for some trauma survivors who are in recovery, that includes having a yoga practice, starting to exercise again, getting into service, which is very much an action. Uh, so all of those can still be trauma-informed ways that we can lay the groundwork. Now, I've also had clients and, and friends in the rooms and folks I've researched over the years who needed to do that deeper trauma work right away or they never would have stayed. Mm because it was just so hot for them. And I, one one case I'm thinking of in particular from, it was actually my dissertation research from over a decade ago. She had such a profound belief of, I am not deserving of recovery. And it was very mm. rooted in several traumatic memories. And she wouldn't even sit still to go to meetings, to go to IOP until somebody got in there with some EMDR and really addressed that for her. So I think everybody's journey with this is different, but it's important that a person has a guide, whether that be a therapist, a sponsor, maybe somebody who is more of a trauma-informed spiritual practitioner uh, who can help a person negotiate a lot of these decisions. And like talk therapy, which you mentioned, I do think it's a good start for a lot of us. Mm -hmm. yeah. It is what's considered like a top-down brain treatment. If you're using the wound metaphor, that might be the Band-Aid that we put on the wound to keep the, the blood from gushing out so that we can then allow a deeper healing process to happen. That's great. Um, I was thinking about, you know, talk therapy, EMDR, in terms of how does someone from the 12 step that doesn't really know about it, how do they, how do they balance that with their recovery and sponsor? What's a good, good place to start? Yeah. So just so we're all on the same page terminology wise, EMDR stands for eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. And it's one of the top treatments that's available now for trauma resolution. When it was founded in the late eighties, it was considered a little like, oh, this is fringe. This is wild, mm -hmm. but there's a very strong evidence base now for its use in resolving traumatic memories and for its use in, um, like concurrent to addiction treatment and even a lot of research now and practice emerging on how EMDR can be used as, as primary treatment. And I, I think if you haven't seen or experienced an EMDR session, you're welcome to go to my YouTube channel. I have a lot of demos. If you Google or YouTube my name and EMDR, uh, you'll see probably the biggest, uh, number of views demo on YouTube and check it out because I really have put it there to try to demystify the EMDR mm. process and how so much of, of what it does is <sighs> encourages us to notice and feel instead of talk and analyze because that talk and that analysis can have a place, but at the end of the day, that's top down and wounds need to heal from the inside out. And EMDR is a process, whether you're using eye movements or other forms of movement, and you could see this more demonstrated in the video, or mm -hmm. there's a lot of just uh, intro videos to, to EMDR on YouTube as well. Uh, 
it's it's really about the going deeper process because when PTSD officially debuted as a diagnosis in 1980, uh, following Vietnam, although it was not unique to Vietnam, to be clear, the treatment community didn't really know what to do with it. And a lot of treatment as usual, like the talking cure and some other methods were kind of put at it. But a lot of professionals soon realized there's a lot about trauma you can't get to by just talking because its imprint can be stored in the body and stored in Mm -hmm. the feeling state. And I mean, there's just something about this treatment that helps so many of us get to this level below words so that we can process it and hopefully live a more adaptive life. And and here's a, a, a pitch for it that I often give to maybe folks who are a little more old school in their 12-step orientation or cl- mm-hmm. counselors who are a little more old school. I'll ask them, how many of you have ever had the client who knows recovery so well you would trust them to run your group? I've had many clients like that over the years who know the slogans, who know... Mm-hmm what step they should be working, who know how to correct their thinking errors. And it's all head knowledge, but things haven't connected at the heart and the body level. And EMDR is probably the most effective treatment I have ever seen that really allows that connection to take place. I know that was the case for me because when I got in to EMDR treatment at two years sober, something I was beating myself up over was I should know what to do by now. Mm-hmm. Because I knew my program really well. And I had quite a bit of talk therapy at that point. And even when I was recommended to go for deeper trauma counseling, I didn't know what else was going to help. Mm-hmm. And I was I had enough willingness to do whatever this trauma therapist might have recommended. And I think I was just in such a way with my mental health symptoms, I was willing to try anything that was different than the slogans and going to meetings. And uh, so I, I think... There's been a long history of endorsing outside help and realizing that advancements in science and medicine and clinical work is not an enemy of 12-step. They can work together. And I may have directly said this in the book, or sometimes I just say it in my talks, that we've learned a lot more about the brain since 1935. Ah, yeah, I like that. conceptualized and created. And it's not to say we we need to ignore that history, because I think there's a lot of beauty in that tradition. But also realizing a lot more has happened. And we've learned a lot more in the last 70, 80 years. Yeah. And um, I found just speaking from my own experience, it was able to unblock things that I didn't know were even really blocks with body image. Um, you know, being stuck in a certain time period of my life that anytime something came up that rustled those feathers, I went right back to the old ways and it it was able to process it quicker than, um, other, even step work. You know, I really did need the outside help and, uh, a military, an ex-military guy that I worked with, he used it for PTSD and he actually told me about it and a former sponsee had used it. And they were able to process these things quicker than years and years and years of other methods. Mm-hmm. So yep. it's pretty amazing. Um, I wanted I, to go yeah, ahead. I That's why I teach it. That's why I do it. Because I, yeah. I, it had such a profound impact on my life. 
Because where I, and I feel it's important to share this with your listeners, because some may relate and have never had this validated, Mm -hmm. that I was two years sober. Mm -hmm. I did not want to lose my sobriety, but on many days, I still wanted to die. Mm. That's Mm. what kind of a bad way I was in with some of my trauma-related mental health Mm -hmm. symptoms. And this was the therapy that was given to me that helped me finally move through that kind of chronic low-grade suicidal ideation that had defined so much of my life. So I knew I had to give it forward. And that's, again, why I do it as a clinician. That's why I write about it. That's why I teach it. Yeah. And in your bio on Instagram, it says EMDR badass, which I'm like, (laughs) that's awesome. (laughs) That name was given to me by Anna David, who's the author of Party Girl, and she's a recovery author. And she interviewed me. Oh, wow. She interviewed me on her blog once. And I mean, she she's a badass to me. So the fact that she called me an EMDR badass, I, I have adopted yeah, yeah. that as a moniker. <laughs> That's awesome. And uh, I reached out to Dr. Ingrid Clayton. Oh, I love and, uh, Ingrid. She, I, when I mentioned that I was uh, interviewing you and she goes, oh my gosh, she is a force. And I'm like, yeah. I so I, I wanted like- to, I wrote this down about your, um, from the book, it said, um, Healing trauma is not about what is wrong with you, but what happened to you. Mm-hmm. That was what you you said. Well, yeah, and, and that's that's a pretty universally accepted saying. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's the slogan of the trauma movement, honestly, because yeah. uh, yeah, it's yeah. something I believe from my whole heart, which is why I wrote it. But uh, a lot of authors and scholars are saying that in in different ways, that the focus needs to move from what's wrong with you to, okay, there's a reason this is happening. So let's hold yeah. space out and explore it yeah and I, I just love that this is coming to the forefront in terms of recovery and breaking the stigma and it, you know it's not all big big t's it's some of these little t's can hold you back as well and um can you talk about that a little bit explain that for your listeners because sure. I think it's yeah a useful distinction and so that kind of verbiage of big t trauma small t trauma came from Francine Shapiro, who developed EMDR therapy in the late 80s. And what's important about that context to understand is, again, we only had the PTSD diagnosis as of 1980. Mm -hmm. And at the time, PTSD was defined as any life or injury threatening event that caused Mm -hmm. a series of symptoms. So examples like combat, even being a civilian who survived war, surviving a natural disaster, surviving a major accident that might have threatened your physical integrity. Those were seen as the big examples for PTSD. But Shapiro even started to recognize that other life stressors, if they're left unresolved, things we don't automatically associate with PTSD, like divorce, infidelity, uh, surviving a alcoholic home, these can all be examples of things that wouldn't glare PTSD in a diagnostic manual, but can still, if unhealed, leave the same impact on on a person's system. So that's when she introduced this concept of small T trauma. Basically, it's everything else that can still cause problems in your life that would meet the definition of a wound. And interestingly, since the late 80s, uh, with new DSMs that have come out, the expansion of what counts for PTSD has been greater. So, for example, witnessing a traumatic event, sexual assault is now directly named as a, as a PTSD qualifying event. 
Uh, but she really was the first to get this idea out there that traumas can come in all shapes and sizes and can show up in a variety of diagnoses. So prior to her death, she actually got away from that language of small T, large T trauma because mm -hmm. she didn't want people value judgmenting it. Oh, okay. That like small T traumas are somehow not as bad as big T's because she consistently taught that a series of small T traumas, if left unhealed, can cause a greater impact on a person than maybe a relatively healthy person who survives one PTSD qualifying trauma. Sure, so sure. In, in her later life, she kind of used this term, traumas are adverse life experiences that may or may not lead you to a PTSD diagnosis. But I, I still don't mind, especially for the general public's understanding, using this mm -hmm. language of big T and small T, because I think it speaks to this idea that you can have big wounds, you can have small wounds, but how they're perceived may vary depending on the person. And if they're left unhealed or untreated, they can continue to cause damage. That's excellent. Um, I wanted to switch gears a little bit and go to the, um, the idea of re in terms of trauma and the, the nervous system and things like that, like calming the nervous system and resetting. Um, it seems like you do a lot of stuff that's art related, yoga, mm -hmm. breathing, tapping. Can you expand on some of that, some of those techniques that people can use as well? Yes. Resetting, I, I like that as a metaphor for sure. Because if you think about a, and this is often shown as a meme that goes around, if your phone isn't working properly and you turn it off and reset it and it's working again, then imagine mm. what that could do for you if you let mm. yourself have these moments. And so a lot of times these pauses, these resets don't need to be like going to an hour and a half yoga class, even though if you can do that, great with mm -hmm. some regularity. Uh, but it could be learning a breath that works for you, that when you can make that intentional pause to I'm overheated, I'm overloaded, I need to sit down and breathe. That may do it. Often for me, it's laying on an ice pack for just five or 10 minutes because I can literally feel my head get overheated sometimes mm -hmm. when my nervous system gets <laughs> in a certain way. Going outside and taking the walk, getting some fresh air, feeling my feet on the ground. And there's just so many rich practices from the yoga traditions that help us with this. I'm a big advocate and I teach and I practice uh, a skill mm -hmm. called yoga nidra, nidra meaning divine or yogic sleep. And it's, it's a beautiful guided meditation that you can do. Uh, I have several on my Trauma Made Simple website. You can get them from all the great teachers of the world on YouTube. And you can do yoga nidras varying from 10 minutes up to an hour. Mm -hmm. And so like I, I will do that. This afternoon, I had a client prior to this interview. And I had just like a half an hour break before this kind of later part of my day. And I laid down. And usually when I lay down, my cat lays on my chest. And that's a nervous system reset for me, just to kind of hear her purr for 10 minutes. And other days I might have done a 10-minute yoga nidra or taken a 10-minute walk outside. So I like to have a collection of different skills. And the expressive arts, like you mentioned, music, dancing, painting, drawing, uh, these all offer us opportunities to engage with things that really help us either enjoy our bodies or rest in our bodies. And uh, cultivating a series of those is just, I think, essential to recovery. 
Yeah. I mean, you, you touched on so much. I remember doing my first yoga class and, and how awkward it was, but as you practice, you realize it's not a competition, right. you know, and if you have a good teacher, you, you know, a good teacher will be like the best part of class is Shavasana, you know, you're yeah, at the end of class. Right. Yeah. And, um, I, I wanted to mention that I, I noticed you were in Costa Rica and you got to uh, be a part of the, I guess it was a week long retreat with Deva Primal and her husband yeah. yes. and you got so, to sing with them. I got to sing with them. So I was not teaching on that retreat to be clear. You were just there, right? As a participant. Yes. And it was my self care for the beginning part of the year. Amazing. Uh, I usually like to go on one retreat myself for, yeah. for the year, even though I do lead retreats and yeah, singing is, is a practice that has long I mean, I, my, my parents met in a Croatian folk dancing and folk singing festival. So it's not a stretch to say that I'm alive because of the music and dance of <laughs> people. So, and my mom played piano for me when I was in the womb and music's just been, it's part of my DNA for sure. So I love to sing. I love a static chant, which is one of the practices of bhakti or the yoga of love and devotion. And yes, I went to Costa Rica uh, with some of my friends and I just sang my heart out throughout the week. And during kind of the last celebration night, Miten invited somebody up on stage to sing with them and my fellow retreatants were like, Jamie, Jamie, go, go. So yeah. Yeah, I went and I got to sing um, a really cool version of Amazing Grace with them and a few other songs. And it was it was, it was just a joy for me. It was beautiful. It was okay. beautiful. You saw the video. Thank you. Yeah. And I, well, and I love them. And uh, there's another guy um, named Garish. Have you ever heard any of his? Well, my girlfriend and I, we he performed at a yoga class here in town about six months ago. It was his first performance but you know, his song diamonds and um, shine like diamonds yeah, in the sun. sun. I mean, to hear that live, but we do that with the uh, foam rollers at night, we'll do our foam rolling and, and roll all the fascia tissue and listen to Devo Primo and in Garish and just, I mean, it totally calms the day down. Yeah. So it was so cool to see you sing with them. I was just like, Oh my gosh, this is great. It's, it, it's my, it's a, it's part of my spiritual practice. It's part of my recovery practice. And even as we're talking now, it amazes me how much I could still sometimes forget how much singing helps me. Mm. And this is a reminder that that's one of the resets I have too, whenever I, I need to. And some days I'm better. That's why I try to keep my guitars out so mm. that I can sing and play along with. <sighs> I just need to do that more. So yeah. thank you. David. Oh, you're <laughs> welcome. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, I, I use art and journaling. A lot of these back here, my artwork and prints and Wonderful. journaling and all that stuff is just, you know, I feel like when we first get into recovery, we're so focused on the not using that eventually if you, the path will let you open up to so many other things. And that's what I see with your work is just, it's this well-roundedness and I can hear it when, when you write, and the things that you post online, I think it's beautiful. So uh, we're coming up on the uh, seven o'clock hour. So I wanted to uh, see if there's any, I noticed you had another book out ju related yes. to jujitsu. So uh, my newest release, which is out just a day before we're recording this interview mm -hmm. is called Transforming Trauma with Jiu-Jitsu. And uh, yes, so the practice of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu is how I learned it, but mm -hmm. the art 
originated in Japan was something that came into my recovery in 2016, 2017. Mm -hmm. And I had always been intrigued by the martial arts, but had a bit of a fear of approaching them myself. But in the spirit of always trying to learn and cultivate something new, uh, my sons were practicing jujitsu, so I ended up taking a women's self-defense class at their gym. I didn't like it initially, but then <laughs> my older son said, well, uh, there's a teacher there I think you would like better, so why don't you take a class or two with him? And I did, and it just opened my world. He was that he was the jujitsu teacher that Janet was for me as a sponsor. Like, I wish any... Mm -hmm female survivor of trauma coming into a martial arts setting would have somebody as, as wonderful as Micah to, to work with them. So, uh, yeah, I ended up teaming up with a woman who's also a trauma survivor and trauma therapist named Anna Perkle, who's out in California. She heard me talk about jujitsu on a podcast like this and then ended up contacting me. So see, podcasts are cool. And yeah, we, we forged them. a friendship from a podcast she heard me on four or five years ago. And ended up writing this book. And it's a book for trauma survivors who are interested in possibly pursuing martial arts, specifically jujitsu, which we believe is uniquely well suited for trauma survivors, because there's a real emphasis not on brute strength or striking, but on using your body leverage as mm -hmm. a way to move assailants to get yourself uh, out of dangerous situations. Uh, so we wrote it for survivors, we wrote it for jujitsu instructors who potentially want to become more trauma-informed. Uh, we wrote it for therapists who are always looking for new ideas on how to work more of these embodied practices into trauma recovery. So it's it's been a journey, and I really want to shout out my friend Anna, who, who wrote the book with me, and I think our strengths uh, uh, worked with each other on the process. And thanks for giving me the chance to shout that out. It's also from North Atlantic Books, who published trauma and the 12 steps. And they just have a lot of vision for bringing creative things to trauma healing. Yeah, that's, that's fantastic. And, uh, I'm, I'm glad that is coming out as well. So, um, before we let you go, I want, this is the recovery nuggets podcast. So I always ask guests to share with maybe someone that's listening, uh, what recovery nuggets would you like to share with someone that's on their journey? Holding your feelings down does not make it easier. Mm. I want to validate, even as I say that, I realize a lot of how you may have been raised in your home, in the culture, has been that feelings are dangerous. It's not safe to feel. You'll get in trouble if you feel. Nobody will validate my feelings. And the longer I've done this work, David, I'm convinced it's not our feelings that cause us problems. It's everything we do to keep from feeling them that can keep us stuck in this cycle. So if it, if it takes you some time to find that person, you can be safe to express your feelings with, give yourself that time. And, and that outlet might just be your journal, the playlist mm -hmm. you put together to start with until you find a therapist or a person or a helper who can help you realize that your feelings are not bad, that, they're valid. Uh, I just feel that's the probably the major reason I'm still alive mm. all these years later as somebody who was profoundly damaged when I came into recovery and I'm still healing. It's, it's, it's a work in process, but 
I think I'm grateful to the role the expressive arts played in my early life as giving me some kind of container to feel stuff, even if it was being up on a stage, acting a role, having that channel, having my journal, having my art, having music. And uh, yeah, so I get that feelings are scary. Yet holding them down will not make this easier. So that's Mm -hmm. the nugget I want to leave you with. Oh, thank you so much. I'm so appreciative of your time and grateful for your work. And um, I've, I've been spreading the word about this book to anyone that, you know, I know oh, I that. Appreciate you for that. And, um, you know, I will uh, send you a message when this is going to go up. And um, I thank you so much for your work. And it was a pleasure to meet you. And I really appreciate you being on the podcast. Thanks for the invite. Thanks again for listening to Recovery Nuggets podcast. I want to thank our guests this week. And uh, if you want to get in touch with the show, you can reach out on Instagram at Recovery Nuggets Podcast. And the email is Recovery Nuggets Podcast at gmail.com. Also, like and subscribe on Spotify and Apple. And be great if you leave a five star review. That really helps out the podcast. And I uh, really want to thank you for showing up for your recovery today. Disclaimer. Recovery Nuggets podcast and guests are not representatives of any 12-step program. I am not a doctor, counselor, or therapist. I share my experiences, strength, and hope. Guests of the show share their personal experiences and opinions. Take what you like and leave the rest. Each person's journey in recovery is unique. Thank you for listening to Recovery Nuggets podcast.